Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. That's Psalm 1, which along with Psalms 2 and 3 are the Psalms appointed for today, Monday, October the 11th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We're <clears throat> continuing our look at um, the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 36, 11 to 26, still in uh, the first epistle to the Corinthians, uh, chapter 13, the first 13 verses, and then in the gospel according to Matthew, the 10th chapter, the 5th through the 15th verses. <clears throat> So I'm going to give you a little bit of background on the Jeremiah uh, lesson because th- that would have been read yesterday. I don't do a daily edition of the podcast on Sundays. I leave that just for Sunday. But sometimes it means that I've got to give you a little context for the reading on Monday. So in, in this one, what's happened is, is that Jeremiah has, been, has called his scribe, his assistant, um, Baruch, into him and, and is told, he had been told by the Lord, that he was to, uh, he, Jeremiah, was to write down everything that the Lord had told him about Judah and Israel from the beginning uh, until the day. And so what he did was, the, the point of it, this is the important part, it may be that the house of Judah will hear all the disaster that I intend to do to them, so that everyone may turn from his evil way and that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. And then Jeremiah says, when he tells Baruch to take this thing and read it, because Jeremiah can't go to the house of the Lord, he sends it and says it may be that their plea for mercy will come before the Lord and that everyone will turn from his evil way, for great is the anger and the wrath that the Lord has pronounced against his people. So that's the backdrop for for what was written here and what will be read by Baruch. So when Micaiah this he so he reads it in the temple, by the way. And now here we go next. When Micaiah the son of Gemariah, son of Shaphan, heard all the words of the Lord from the scroll, he went down to the king's house, into the secretary's chamber, and all the officials were sitting there. Elishama the secretary, Deliah the son of Shemaiah, El Nathan the son of Agbor, uh, Gemariah the son of Shaphan, Zedekiah the son of Hananiah, who's priest, and all the officials. And Micaiah told them all the words that he had heard when Baruch read the scroll in the hearing of the people. So the officials sent Jehudi the son of Nathaniah, son of Shelemiah, son of Cushi, to say to Barak, Baruch, take in your hand the scroll that you read in the hearing of the people and come. So he did. And he came to them, and they said to him, Sit down and read it. So Baruch read it to them. And when they heard all the words, they turned to one another in fear for what they had heard. Then they asked Baruch, Tell us, please, how did you write all this word? these words? Was it at his, Jeremiah's, dictation? Baruch answered them. He dictated all these words to me while I wrote them with ink on the scroll. Then the officials said to Baruch, Go and hide, you and Jeremiah, and let no one know where you are. So they, the others, went into the court of the king, having put the scroll in the chamber of Elishama the secretary, and they reported all the words to the king. Then the king sent Jehudi to get the scroll, and he took it from the chamber of Elishama the secretary, and Jehudi read it to the king and all the officials who stood by the king. It was the ninth month, and the king was sitting in the winter house, and there was a fire burning in the fire pot before him. 
As Jehudi read three or four columns, the king would cut them off with a knife and throw them into the fire in the fire pot until the entire scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the fire pot. Yet neither the king nor any of his servants who heard these words was afraid, nor did they tear their garments. Even when Elnathan and Deliah and Gemariah urged the king not to burn the scroll, he would not listen to them. And the king commanded Jehermiel, the king's son, and Sariah, the son of Azrael, and Shelemiah, the son of Abdeel, to seize Baruch the secretary and Jeremiah the prophet. But the Lord hid them. So Jeremiah is not doing this because he wants to announce judgment on his people or on the people. No, he's doing it for the same reason that prophets should always be speaking. It's because they want to warn them and give them a way of averting a coming disaster. And that's exactly what Jeremiah is trying to do here, is to warn the people so that they can turn just exactly like uh, Solomon prayed could happen, would happen, when the people knew their sin and turned from their sin and repented and turned to the Lord and asked him for mercy, that he would be merciful to give them forgiveness and to annul the judgment that had been spoken against them. And the Abraham Joshua Heschel was a great Jewish scholar. Uh, he's been dead maybe 20 years or so, and uh, maybe a little longer than that. But, but he wrote a book called The Prophets, and what he talked about in the prophets was the prophet's character. This is boiled down as tightly as I can get it. The prophet's character has to be a man who is zealous for God's will. And so we are to be prophetic people in the sense that that we pray for the coming of God's kingdom and that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so, so we are to be zealous for establishing that will in our lives first and then on the earth because we want to be good ambassadors of that kingdom. And so what he said is, is that the, the, the prophet had to be a man who was zealous for God's righteousness and his holiness to be respected, for it to be upheld in the nation particularly at that time. And then this, the first thing was he had to align with God. He had to align with God's program for God's people. And then he had to represent God to the people. So he would represent God to the people in this way by writing these prophecies and saying, you need to turn from your wicked ways or the Lord is going to rain down judgment on you. So that was his job vis-a-vis the people. But but that's only half the job because the other half of the job was his, his job to represent the people to God. So he had to align himself with the people as well. He, he had to, to know them well enough to communicate God's will to them, and he had to know and love them enough to communicate their foolishness and their weakness to the Lord. So he was never to stand in judgment over the people. He was to plead the people's case before the Lord, as well as the Lord's case before the people's. And so his character had to be of a man who, who was sort of... Um, free-flowing as far as God's, God's um, anger and, and God's righteousness had to flow through him, but then his, his uh, alliance with the people had to be complete too. And that's what we see in Jesus in the Incarnation. He came and represented God's will to God's people, the ones who were in covenant with him, and then he also represented and represents today God's people before the throne of God. He pleads our case. And so it's Jesus was the perfect 
profit in that way. So in the gospel lesson today, Jesus sent out the twelve and instructed them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans even, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, the ones who are in covenant with God, and proclaim as you go, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, and cast out demons. That would be a, so there would be a proclamation in words of the coming of the kingdom, but then there would be a proclamation in deed of the coming of the kingdom as well. So these healings and the casting out of demons and all that, those things all have to do with the kingdom of God bringing healing and health. So it's a, it's a verbal proclamation, but it's also a demonstration of the coming of the kingdom at the same time. You received, he says, without paying, give without pay. In other words, don't take any money for the proclamation. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. So he says don't, don't acquire money while you're there, but, but you do deserve to be paid in the form of room and board while you're, while you're out there. Don't prepare as we would, for instance, for a, a mission trip. I mean, when we went to Haiti many years ago, the, the preparation was unbelievable, all the things that we had to take with us and all that we would need while we were there. And so Jesus is saying to them, don't make a whole bunch of preparation here. Just go. Go in the power of the Spirit, not in the power of your preparation, but go in the power of the Spirit and do this work. Whatever town or village you enter, find out who's worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. If the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if he is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, then shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Hospitality is is maybe the chief virtue in Judaism. Um, It's the thing that Abraham in Judaism is most noted for. The man leaves God at one point when he's when he's recovering after his circumcision when he when he is out there in the in the in the um, wilderness essentially and he he's in his tent God comes to check on him and then he leaves God behind and goes meets in three men and so that hospitality is one of the chief virtues in Judaism and and Abraham is the man of hospitality par excellence. And so what they would say is is that then that's connected with the inhospitality of Sodom and Gomorrah. That doesn't mean that's the only sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, but it means that it's an important part of Sodom and Gomorrah's sin, and it's important enough that we need to be aware of that, and we need to be hospitable people. It's important that we do that. It's part of our witness as Christians to be hospitable. To, to other Christians, but also to all people. But notice here, Jesus just sends them out to the Jews, because that's who Jesus is representing God to in the Incarnation. He's representing him to the people who are in covenant with God. And then the, the, the covenant is not annulled, but it's expanded in Jesus. But, but he has come to, to call the lost sheep of Israel to repent and to turn back to the Lord and to embrace that covenant. In the epistle lesson, Paul continues in speaking of—he had been speaking of the gifts, and then uh, says that, you know, here's the reality is without love, all these gifts are are really not valuable. 
for building up the kingdom. And so love and hospitality go together. And Paul is is here encouraging the people to love one another as like it, it, Jeremiah, they call the weeping prophet, and it's because he's weeping over God's judgment against the people. He is aligned with the people in his heart. He recognizes he's one of them. And so Paul is is saying that's the way we're to live within the church. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have and to deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Paul is telling this church, I believe, one really important thing, and it's important because that's what you've seen when he talked about when they gather for communion. Some people have plenty to eat, and others are are sitting there with nothing at all. There's there's no love, because he says that's divisions among you is proof that there's no love. And so he's calling the people to say, you may have all kinds of gifts of the Spirit, and it's a wonderful thing that you have those things, but if love is not the thing that binds it all together, then, then none of those gifts have any actual value. Jesus could have done anything, but what, what we're told over and over again is that he had compassion on the people. He, he saw their plight, and he came with, with peace— and love, but also truth, because truth is, is an important thing. It just doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. It, it's important that we rejoice with the truth, and we uphold that truth, that we not break it down out of some misguided sort of love for people, because our important task is to tell them the truth about how God feels about sin and, and what those sins are. So there's a way to live and there's a way not to live, and, and we're supposed to side with God's truth there. We can't plead anyone's case before the Lord if they're not standing in truth. He says, love never ends, and that's an important little three-word sentence. Everything else does. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. We're seeing things not as they should be. We're seeing things as they are. But the, the, the goal is to see things clearly, to see the coming of God's kingdom and the fullness of his kingdom. And that's what he means. When the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. We, we don't see things clearly. Because our, our, our sight, our vision, is obstructed by sin, and it's obstructed by the world. He said, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, and I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. I mean, I don't even know myself fully. That's honestly what I, the way I feel when I read that is, is that, oh my gosh, there's, there's parts of myself that are hidden from me. I don't know why I do this, that, and the other thing. And that's the reason psychotherapy and, and all that has taken off over the last hundred years or so, because we recognize that we don't know ourselves well enough. 
And so Paul says that God does know us fully, though. And our goal is to know fully, even as I have been fully known. And he says, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. And the reason it's the greatest is, is that it is the one thing that won't pass away. Faith and hope will, will find their fulfillment in the coming of the kingdom of God and, and eternity. But love will remain through all of that. And so we're called to be those people who hold forth that eternal and enduring value above all else.